0: We'll Please remain standing um, while we read God's word together. Today's um, verse comes out of Revelation 19, um, verses 11 through 16. If you're looking in these little blue Bibles that are distributed in the pews, it is page 607 or 602, basically the very last page of the Bible. So I'll give you a minute to get there. Um, again, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows by himself. He is clothed in robe, the dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, we're following him on the on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the word of God, you may be seated.
1: Well, good morning, Icon. How's it going? Good? good? All righty. I don't have my normal music stand today, and this one's a little uh, little iffy, so we'll see if it like, <laughs> stays together. Oh, there we go, just like that. <laughs> see what I mean? There we go. There we go. I just want to touch it. <laughs> will you? Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that over the last four months as we've gone through the book of Revelation, you, you've been teaching us and you've been clarifying for us what so much of this means. And, and God, I just pray that as we uh, begin the end of our series, the, this week and next week, I, I pray that you would really piece it all together for us and see the encouragement of this book. Like we've been talking about this whole series, we, we are going through this in order to gain a sense of resilience in our discipleship. And I know for myself, as I've reflected on today's passage and on the passage for next week, our, our resilience as disciples depends on the end of this story. And so God, as we, as we explore that, as we look at who Jesus is today and, and really stare at him, I pray that your spirit would help us to just worship him. That's that's our only task today, is to see Jesus and to respond in worship. And so God, would you unite your power with my weak words today and help us to see Jesus with clarity. And would you move our hearts toward worship. God, we love you and we trust His time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, good morning. It is good to be back with you in an actual service. Uh, It was great to see so many of you at the marriage conference. Uh, If you weren't able to make it, we do have some recordings of it, and I would love for you to be able to go through that. Uh, It was a really encouraging time with Redemption Church in Green Lake. And and then as you know, we had planned a icon anniversary party last Sunday, uh, but the wildfire smoke uh, ended up ruining that, which I woke up on Sunday and I was kind of like, we probably could have done this, you know, Uh, it seems like the wildfire smoke. Cleared on Sunday, but that's okay. Um, Just a quick note, I'll talk about this in the uh, end of service, but we still have a ton of food that we ordered for that, uh, and we're going to give a lot to a food bank that is right down the street from our offices, but also we figured we might as well get together and eat some of it ourselves as well. So after this service, uh, if you want to come hang with us at the Icon office, we're just going to cook up some burgers, I'm going to turn on the Seahawks game, and we're just going to have a good time. So if you don't have lunch plans... Uh, I'd encourage you to to come hang there. But for this morning, uh, we are closing in on the end of our series through Revelation. And I just want to pause and again say I said this a few weeks ago how great you have been through this series. (laughs) Uh, I know five months in a complicated book like this can be a little tiring. Uh, and I hope that it's been helpful in, in clarifying for you. And it's okay if it has been tiring, because if I'm totally honest, it has been tiring for me. Um, this has been quite the series. And not because Revelation is too difficult. There's, there's plenty of commentaries and scholars to help there. But what's been tiring for me as we've gone through this book for the last four or five months is that although this book is filled with helpful encouragements to help Christians endure in their discipleship, it's also filled with reasons why it is so hard for Christians to endure. I mean, Revelation is very honest about the difficulty of the Christian life. It paints a vivid and honest picture about the barriers that we face in our discipleship. It paints a vivid and honest picture about the personal evil in this world that is seeking to undo our faith in Jesus. And it can be tiring to go through that week after week, just expounding together on the reasons why the Christian life is is so often threatened by ourselves or by the evil one. But thankfully, that all changes today. We have reached a point in the book of Revelation. Where the upward trajectory doesn't stop. It doesn't dip again. Today we're going we're to cover Revelation 19.11 and we're actually going to go all the way through chapter 20. And this section is the turning point where things get resolved. Can I get an amen? Amen. 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 Where the, the problems and the difficulties and the chaos of the book of Revelation begins to meet their resolution. And then next week, we're going to see how uh, God brings recreation, not just resolution, but but recreation. But even though things get resolved in this section that we're going to cover, keeping on brand with the book of Revelation, there's still so much in this section that is complicated and open to all kinds of interpretation. And so in, in order to, to guide us through this section, I actually want to remind you, as we close in on the end of this series, remind you of one of the principles that I, that I gave you in the beginning of the series. Uh, if you remember back in May, I gave you 10 principles on how to read the book of Revelation. If you weren't here for that, I would encourage you to go and listen to that. And one of the principles that I gave you was to respect the title of the book. We we often think that the name of this book is just Revelation, or for some of us, Revelations. It's not. It's not plural. It's one, Revelation. But the official title of the book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Throughout this book, the whole point is to reveal Jesus and all the imagery and all the chaos, we're meant to see Jesus. The, the, maybe a fuller title for this book would be the book of the, the revelation of Jesus Christ by Jesus Christ about Jesus Christ. I mean, the, the, the very beginning of the book opens up with the Apostle John exiled to the prisoner island, Patmos. And there, as the Apostle John was, was praying and worshiping on a Sunday, Jesus shows up to him. If you remember how this whole thing started. And gives him this long vision that we call the book of Revelation. And although the vision has all kinds of things going on, the one central theme through the whole book is this revealing Jesus Christ. If you were to pick up that thread, the entire book of Revelation comes up with it. This book, this letter, is meant to reveal Jesus Christ. And now because the the revealing of Jesus Christ is the central thrust of this book, we should not be going through all of these visions and images simply as speculators, simply as spectators. (laughs) Rather, we should be going through this book with worship. If we walk away from the book of Revelation, if after this series we are filled with more speculation and not more worship, we've missed the point. We've totally missed it. If we are to let the book of Revelation have its way with us in the way that it's intended to, we will walk away with a more vivid, a more awe inspiring view of Jesus than we ever had before. This theme and purpose of the book is critical, and it's especially critical in these last few chapters. In this section that we're going to cover today, Jesus kind of shows back up in the narrative of the book. He's been working and battling for the faith of his people throughout the book at certain moments where we've seen him. But here in this section, Jesus has a unique reemergence on the scene. And so what what I want to do today is simply look at this unique reemergence of Jesus in the story and see what we learn about him. We're just going to talk about Jesus today. Is that okay? Okay. That was not nearly hearty enough. You are all pagans. We're just going to talk about Jesus today. We're just going to, yes, there we go. Amy, I'm so glad you're back. We're going to look at Jesus and see what we learn about him. Like I said, it would be so easy to get lost in the complications and the mystery. And in fact, people spend a whole lifetime trying to interpret something that we're going to cover today called the millennium. I'm going to do a little bit of interpretation there and help you and really just tell you what what I think is right, and then open it up. But, but I don't want to get lost in that. I don't want us to, to miss the point because we get lost in all these interpretations. I want us to see Jesus. We're going to simply stare at Jesus in this section and see if we can't have our hearts warmed to worship him more. So what are some things that we see about Jesus in these verses that might warm our heart to worship? First is this. We see the unchangeable nature of Jesus Christ. Now, although we're going to cover more than what was read, I, I thought it was important to have our scripture reading cover verses 11 through 16. And that's because the vision of Jesus that it gives is so strikingly similar to the vision of Jesus we were given in the first few chapters of the book. There there in the beginning of the book, we read of how Jesus's eyes are like a flame of fire. You heard that here. We hear that Jesus is the faithful witness in chapter one, the true witness. Okay, we hear that here. We hear that he was clothed in a robe, that he had a sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth. We were told in chapter one that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. These, These are all things that we are told about Jesus again here in Revelation 19. And friends, I don't think that's an accident. I don't think that's a coincidence that the Apostle John just got lucky with. Nor is it a small detail to just pass on by. But we should notice it. And in that chapter one, we covered what all this means to see Jesus presented to us in this way. So I'd encourage you to go re-listen to that. But the point to see here today is that Jesus is presented to us in chapter 19 in the same way he's presented to us in chapters one through two. Now again, you might think that's just a small detail that I'm just seeing something that's not actually there, but I don't think that's true. I don't think, I don't think it's an accident. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think this is meant to teach us something. I mean, friends, there's a lot that has happened since chapters one through two. There is a lot That has happened. We've seen chaos and upheaval. We've seen God's people threatened and even killed for their faith throughout this whole story. We've seen evil put forward their best effort to deceive the world and crush the faith of those who follow Jesus. We've seen evil take hold of political power to deceive the world and also take hold of religious power to persecute Christians. A lot has happened in this book since chapters one through two. But friends, nothing has happened to Jesus. (laughs) Nothing has happened to him. This matching description of Jesus in Revelation 19 is meant to get us to see that after all the chaos, all the disruption, all the upheaval, none of it has changed who Jesus Christ is. None of it has affected him. None of it has changed what he's capable of. After all of it, Jesus remains the same, which is such a, a comfort. Can you imagine the safety and the comfort of that, friends? I mean, the change in other people is one of our greatest relational fears, right? A lot of people d- delay getting married to someone they've been with for a long time simply because they're afraid of how they themselves will change or how the other person will change, right? When you, when you sign up to spend a lifetime with someone, you have to know and expect that the person you married is not the same person you'll be with when you're 40, 50, or 60. That person's going to change, and that's a fearful thing. You're going to change, and that's a fearful thing. That's a big relational risk. And the changing of other people isn't just a fear that we have, but a reality that we all experience. I mean, I'm sure all of us have that relationship, that friendship that used to mean so much to us. But now things are just different. Maybe not even because something happened, but just because people change. I know for me that that relationship was a friendship I used to have. Five years ago, I lost one of my closest friends only because things had simply changed. I was one of his best men in his wedding, but after marriage, things just changed in the friendship to the point of not being able to recover what we had before. He was one of my closest friends, and he knows the most sensitive parts of my story, and now I just haven't talked to him in months. And even before I talked to him a few months ago, I hadn't talked to him in probably a year Things change, people change, people shift, relationships shift. We all fear that change in other people will mean the loss of the relationship or maybe our own irrelevance in the relationship. And when that inevitably happens to all of us, we grieve it. How's that happened to you? Think of that friend. Think of that relationship. Maybe that family member. Who things used to be so beautiful with, so easy, so connecting, so meaningful. And that just by the sheer nature of things, it's different now. But that's never a fear that should come into our relationship with Jesus. As Hebrews 13 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus never changes. Even when, even when all kinds of things are happening all around us, like all the chaos of Revelation, nothing actually happens to Jesus. Nothing changes in him. No matter what's happening, his disposition toward us doesn't change. Difficulty and trial doesn't dissuade Jesus from leaning toward us in love. No matter what happens, his position never changes. The book of Revelation is filled with attempts to slow down the kingdom of God, but the position and the authority of the reigning Jesus Christ does not move an inch throughout the book. He never changes. When we are in trial, when we go through difficulty or have some great need, friends, we never have to come to Jesus and be afraid that we're going to meet a Jesus different than the one that has loved us all along. Does anyone hear the good news of that? You never have to wonder the Jesus you're going to come to. Jesus has never had a bad day on the throne of the universe, and so you're worried he's going to take it out on you. His disposition never changes. He is always loving. He is always powerful. He is always in control. Despite all the chaos of our lives and the upheaval of our world, not a single hair has been moved out of place in the character and consistency of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What a comfort that is. Second, we see that Jesus is never contested. Jesus is never truly challenged. One of the the most striking things about this whole section of Revelation in 1911 through chapter 20 is the pure ease through which Jesus approaches his victory. Like there's nothing concerning him. There's nothing that he's worried about as he rides that white horse down into victory. But, I mean, let, let me show you some of that. After, after verse 16, Jesus, after, after verse 16 calls Jesus the king of kings and the Lord of lords, if you read further on, all the kings of the earth are defeated in the next section of verses. But there's no fight that actually happens. Jesus, the true king, just simply shows up, and by his mere arrival, all of the kings of the earth lose their position. The real king has come. Or even consider what Jesus' army looks like. Did you did you pick up on that and what it says they're wearing as Ashley read the scripture reading? It says that they're arrayed in fine linen. I'm no war tactic expert. But I can guess that if you're riding to war in linen, you're going to lose. <laughs> Unless you know you're already going to win. <laughs> and so Jesus's army can ride behind him. The armies of heaven can follow Jesus and find linen because they know there's not a real fight that's going down. Jesus shows up and he wins. And when Jesus shows up, chapter 20, if you read further, shows the fate of Satan. And his two beasts that he's been using throughout the last few chapters of Revelation. Now, now, chapter twenty contains one of those passages that I mentioned earlier, called the millennium, and that's one of those things that people have been arguing over for a very long time. In fact, it's really interesting if you if you want to read church history. I promise you, it's more thrilling than you think it is. It's actually awesome, um, and it's really encouraging too to see the dysfunction. An idiocy that has just filled the church for 2,000 years now. And we're still here. <laughs> That's an apologetic for the gospel, right? It's really good. But if you read through church history, you actually see how some of the interpretations around this millennium, even though it's one section in scripture really influences the church and society all throughout the last 2,000 years. It's really interesting. If you want to learn more, I'd be happy to, to talk with you about it. But, but I do want to give a short explanation on that because I know that some people might have questions. And if you don't have questions, you can just tune out, and then I'll get real loud to let you know when you can tune back in. Okay? Okay. <laughs> So there are generally three positions people take on this millennium in chapter 20, and they all put forward uh, a speculation around how this 1,000 years relates to the final return and second coming of Jesus. So before you go through those interpretations, let me just read it so you know what I'm talking about. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Christians reign with Jesus during that 1,000 years. So, so the interpretations of this, they all have to do with the final return and, and second coming of Jesus. And the first one is what's called pre-millennialism, uh, which holds that Jesus' second coming comes before the 1,000 years. And that after that 1,000 years, Jesus lets Satan out one more and then defeats him finally and fully. That's one of the first interpretations. The second is what's called postmillennialism. Uh, which believes that Jesus' second coming comes after, after the 1,000 years and that the millennium is a time of, of, of worldwide conversion and belief in the gospel until Jesus comes after that 1,000 years and gives a final blow to the kingdom of Satan. And then there's the right interpretation, um, which is called amillennialism. It's a joke, people, golly. Golly. Um, this position holds that the 1,000 years is a symbolic representation of where things currently are. Um, Amillennialism holds that the millennium, this 1,000 years, is a symbolic number. And actually that this millennium, symbolic number, started when Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. Now, as you can probably tell, I hold to that last position on uh, and one of the things that I've been harping on in this entire series is how the numbers in revelation should be treated. If you remember, how should the numbers in revelation be viewed? Don't say it, Gala, you already answered it. I know. Huh? Symbolics? Symbolics. Yes. Yes. The numbers and revelations are, in revelation is symbolic, not statistics. The numbers in Revelation are symbolic, not statistics. And the reason why I take this 1,000 years to be a symbol is because when you go through the book of Revelation and you say that the numbers are symbols, you should probably be consistent, right? <laughs> you, you, you don't get to pick and choose which numbers are symbols and which numbers are statistics. They are either all symbols or they are all statistics. And so I take this 1,000 years to be a symbol of the spiritual reign of Christ through his church that has been going on since Satan was defeated at the cross. Now, that's my view. And you know what? That's not the point. (laughs) That's not the thrust. The point of any of those interpretations, the point of this whole millennium talk is that Jesus wins I mean, after the the talk of that 1,000 years, Satan is allowed out of his cage one last time. And let me read to you what happens next. Listen to this. And when the 1,000 years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. To gather all of his for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So Satan's got a big army. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Uh-oh. Uh-oh but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. That was quick. That wasn't a war. No effort, no real fight. Jesus just simply shows up on the scene in chapter 19 and the rest of it, he wins. This is is important for us, friends. We often fall into what's called dualism, right? Which is the idea of opposing but equal forces. If we're not careful, we can begin to think that Satan and his evil forces have somewhat of a shot when it comes to fighting Jesus. We'll think that it's equal powers going against one another, and we're pretty sure Jesus is going to win, but we're not really sure in the end. That's not true. There's no dualism. There's no equal. It's not a fair fight or an equal fight. Satan is not Jesus' equal. And Jesus is never contested, never truly challenged by Satan. Even in Jesus' death, it was not the defeat of Jesus. I mean, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus tells his disciples that, that no one takes his life. No one but he lays it down of his own accord. And so when Jesus died on the cross, that was his own choice. That was him doing what he knew he was going to do. That was not evil having a rare day of victory. No, that was Jesus doing what he wanted to do. The cross was not the defeat of Jesus, but the deference of Jesus as he laid down his life willingly to save. The thing to get is this, Jesus is never contested, never challenged, never worried, never threatened. All the ways that evil has, throughout the book of Revelation, put forward its best effort. And to us, how intimidating it is. To think of the way that evil can take hold of political power like we covered in 16. Or even how it can deceive through religious power. It's intimidating for us. But Jesus is never intimidated by that. Jesus is not contested or challenged by the sheer fact of who he is. He wins. (laughs) I love how Martin Luther's old hymn says it, called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In one of the verses, he says this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word, just by the breath of his mouth, Jesus will win the war. Jesus is never contested. And finally, the last thing we learn about Jesus in this section is this. Jesus saves us despite us. Listen to this at the end of chapter 20. In verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. who reads that and gets a little uncomfortable? Am I the only one who reads of the judgment of God, of the lake of fire, of the second death, of being judged according to what you've done and shake a little bit? I mean, let's really just describe what's been read to us. That God sits on a great white throne And his throne is so pure that the earth and sky flee away. Now, I was on a plane yesterday heading back from a short little hunting trip. I saw the sky and I saw the earth and I thought, they flee? It's so beautiful, so stunning. But here, even earth and sky feel impure before the judgment throne of God. And so they flee. But we can't. In the text, we can't flee. We are made to stand before this great white throne of judgment. And as we stand there, two books open up. First is what you might call the the book of deeds. And in this book is the recorded moral fabric of your life. Everything you've done has been seen with divine clarity. And written down. Everything you've done, every moment of broken integrity, every moment of half truth told in order to save your skin, every improper lust, every vicious critique, every demeaning word, all of it seen and recorded. I mean, that's terrifying enough, but it gets worse. The the book of deeds is meant to be read out loud. All of your deeds read out loud before God and before the watching world. In other words, you will be exposed for who and what you really are. There will be nowhere to hide, nowhere to flee, nothing to argue. All of your deeds seen with divine clarity and read out loud. I mean, what would be in your book? I I even wonder what, from this last week, what new line was added in your book of deeds? What would be in your book? I mean, you should see mine. In fact, one day, if this text is really describing what's going to (laughs) happen, you will. You'll see my book of deeds as we all stand before the throne. Line after line of sin. Noun after noun that describes the object of sin. Verb after verb that describes the action that was taken. Adjective after adjective that describes the intensity of that sin. All of it read aloud. But the relief, another book is opened. The book of life. And from the reading of the text, we see that this book of life is what matters. It says this, if one's name was not found in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Which means if your name is in that book, you're not. <laughs> you're not thrown. The, the, the book of deeds matters. But the book of life is what matters most. Our moral life is taken seriously, but not more seriously than the life and the forgiveness available to us in Jesus Christ. That means that from the reading of the text, no matter what is in your book of deeds, if your name is in the book of life, you are accepted. Hard stop, end of story. And it also means that if your name is not in the book of life, it doesn't matter what isn't in your book of deeds. It doesn't matter how morally upright you think you've been. If your name is not in the book of life, you will be condemned. The book of life, which holds every name of every person that has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that is what will determine your destiny. In fact, based on other places in Scripture, if your name is in this book of life, your book of deeds might just be redacted with red ink, right? Scripture tells us that for the Christian, God remembers our sins no more. He throws them into the depths of the sea. He separates us from them as far as the east is from the west. If your name is in the book of life, there's nothing in your book of deeds to be read because it's all been redacted by the blood of Jesus Christ. No judgment, no condemnation. Friends, despite us, Jesus Christ saves us. I don't care what is in your book of deeds. I don't care if you have one of the pages on that book of deeds turned over so that you know exactly where it is. You know the things that you've done. You know the things that stand out to you and make you carry a load of shame. All of that, redacted. All of that, taken away. Jesus Christ saves us despite us. This is is a Jesus worth trusting in, worth sticking with, worth worshiping. And that's the whole point of the end of this book, is to help your heart rise as you've read through and worked through all of the chaos and upheaval and disruption, but make your heart rise to worship Jesus through it all to make it through the end. So friends, I don't, I don't have an application for you today. I don't have anything for you to go and do. The only thing I have for you is to do what the book actually leads us toward, which is worship. Worship this Jesus. And so I, I wanna pray, and we're gonna have a moment to reflect, and the band is gonna come up to sing, and I just want you to think and consider this Jesus who's never changed, who's never contested, and who will never condemn you despite what you've done. So let let me pray and we'll move our hearts toward worship. Father, what a gift Jesus Christ is. What a gift this book is to see Jesus and we know all these things about him. We've heard that he doesn't change. We've heard and known that he wins and we usually believe that he forgives our sins. But the end of this book just brings it with such vivid clarity and such striking imagery. And God, I I pray that that our hearts would have the desired effect to be moved to worship. And I pray specifically for that last one, the forgiveness of our sins. God, I pray right now that your spirit would rest on our hearts. The comfort, the assurance, and the peace that comes with being in the book of life. What more security could we want? What more assurance, what more peace could we want? So God, through our singing, through our reflecting, make our hearts believe. Make our hearts receive the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and be moved to worship you accordingly, God. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.